With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I am so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 13th episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues to highlight current issues that need to be discussed more to help reduce breaches and security incidents. And I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites. Some of them include privacyprofessor.org, Symbus360.com and privacyguidance.com. Now, speaking of tips, my April Privacy Professor Tips message was published on Friday, March 27th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, you should know they're free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, I've had several of my listeners ask me to provide a separate quick tip or two apart from my main show topic during each of my shows. So I'm going to start doing that today, and this will be a a quick tip that hopefully will help you out a little bit. I'm going to start with one of the topics that I actually covered in my April Privacy Professor tips, the Cambridge Analytica Facebook situation. Now, that has uncovered many types of problems, including a problem of many types of social media sites, and that is users who are not locking down their accounts enough or not at all. Many of the people whose personal data and activities were obtained by Cambridge Analytica resulted from them allowing their friends' actions involving data collection to also include the collection of their data. For example, by taking those free quizzes, there are so many of those online. You know, you take them, what kind of dog would you be or what's your color represents you? Well, if your friends are taking those, most likely they probably didn't even realize it, but when they took those, they gave not only their own personal data to their Facebook and other social media sites to the quiz provider, but they also may have given all of their friends' data to them as well because no restrictions in their friends' Facebook settings would have allowed that. So to help keep your friends' actions from resulting in your data from being collected on Facebook based upon their actions, go in Facebook to Settings, 
click edit under apps others use and uncheck the information you do not want accessed by your friends apps now note some versions of facebook don't have this it depends on if you're using their app or if you're using it online and so on now do similarly for your other social media sites also Really, check your settings and make changes if you do not have this done already. And if you want to keep your personal data and your activities, such as what you like or frown upon on different posts, if you want to protect those, then do this. Now, speaking of awareness... I've been providing information security and privacy training and awareness for corporations since 1990, and I've also been creating and sending my free monthly privacy professor tips that I just mentioned a little bit earlier since 2007 to the general public, and also a lot of organizations get them and share them with their employees as well. You know, I strongly believe The more people are aware of privacy and data security risks, the more actions they can take to reduce those risks. When I first got deeply entrenched in privacy issues around 1993, I did some research. And just consider, 1993, it was much more difficult then with a much, much smaller and much more limited Internet. But I ran across a publication called the Privacy Journal that my corporation's library had access to. And as I was going through it, I thought, wow, this guy back at that time had been writing and publishing that publication about privacy for 20 years. And really, at that time, very few in 1993 had been worried about privacy, at least from my perspective and what I had seen at that time. I found that publication very interesting and informational, and I would go visit my corporate library every quarter or so to read the Privacy Journal to see what was going on in the world of privacy. Hey, guess what? As our guest today, we have the creator and sole editor since the Privacy Journal started being published, Robert Ellis Smith is a journalist, and he uses his training as an attorney to report on the individual's right to privacy. Since 1974, he has published that privacy journal. It's a monthly newsletter on privacy in a digital world. Robert's a frequent speaker, and he's a writer, And he's been a congressional witness on privacy issues. And he's compiled a huge clearinghouse of information on privacy, including on such things as computer data banks, on credit and medical records, the Internet, electronic surveillance, uh, the law of privacy, physical and psychological privacy. His first book is called Privacy, How to Protect What's Left of It. And it was nominated for a National Book Award in 1980. His latest book, called Faces I Have Known, was just recently published. Robert, thank you very much for being my guest today, and welcome to my show. Good to talk to you, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah, well, I find so much of what you wrote in that book so fascinating, Um But before we get to your latest book, I do want to cover some of your earlier career 
And, you know, as mentioned in your intro, you've been in the privacy business for a very long time. So can you tell our listeners, um, and, and keep in mind, we have about half of my listeners come from outside of the United States. So, you know, how did you get into the profi- uh, privacy profession back in the 1970s? What led you there? Yeah, I should mention first that I, I'm a specialist in privacy. Uh, security is one aspect of that, but I don't pretend to be a computer security expert, but I am a lawyer and a journalist, and I report on privacy as a, as a human right, a consumer uh, issue. I, I was a journalist uh, for many years, then worked in the civil rights area, and uh, wanted to combine these two fields. Um, I worked for the American Civil Liberties Union for about a year in New York, excuse me, in Washington, and uh, I discovered that nobody was really covering this issue. Um, and the little press coverage that there was was really not too well informed. So I started this newsletter to try to tell consumers what their rights were. I was shocked to find out uh, how glib and inaccurate credit reports are. And uh, as a journalist, I just think you owe it to the people you write about to be accurate and to get the information from more than one source. And credit bureaus were not doing that. They don't do it to this day. And I really feel that last fall when we had that huge data breach at uh, Equifax, even though most people know that there was a breach there, not many people know exactly what Equifax does and how they impact on people's lives. And I tried to report that over the years about the credit reporting industry, tell people exactly how that credit reporting uh, system works and, and how it affects their ability to uh, get a mortgage, to, to buy an automobile, to sometimes get a rental property, to, to hold a job. So that's how I got into it. And, of course, it expanded um, over the years. I never did anticipate electronic mail. I didn't anticipate the Internet. But um, they certainly have an impact on privacy, and I just had to adapt. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, back in the mid-1970s then, um, you were talking about you were concerned back then about the credit reporting agency. So was Equifax even around back then, or where did you get your credit reports back then? Oh, indeed, yeah. It dates back to the 1890s. Kind Holy of a, cow. Yeah, kind <laughs> of an ancient, recalcitrant, sleepy little uh, company called Retail Credit uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and they began uh, keeping records for uh, – um, merchants and retailers in various cities. And then just about the time I got into this business, they began to buy up all the credit bureaus around the country, which prior to this had been mom-and-pop operations, uh, uh, three-by-five cards, not computerized at all. And, uh, Equifax jumped into this uh, field to uh, consolidate the credit bureaus and to automate them. And uh, that's about the time also that we had a new federal law affecting them when Congress began to notice that uh, there were a lot of abuses in this field. and They enacted the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is really America's first privacy law back in 1971 that gives certain rights to people. Mm-hmm. So then, so you were really on the, the leading edge of looking at privacy issues then back at that time because uh, you recognize, it sounds like, that holy cow, we have... The credit reporting agencies, they have all this data, and now they're gathering it into one central area. So what inspired you then to take the next step and start the Privacy Journal publication? Well, I just have an incurable curiosity, and I want to find out how things work, and I want to share that uh, with other people. 
back in those years, I was really a curiosity. The press didn't understand me because I was a reporter, and uh, they wondered whether I even had a telephone or whether I lived in a cave somewhere uh, because I was a fanatic about privacy. In fact, I was an advocate for getting information out to consumers, uh, telling people what their rights are and how they can uh, find out information that's kept about them and what they can can do about it. my newsletter began really being consumer-oriented, but uh, I also reached a lot of corporate people like yourself, uh, and uh, I tried to reach these two audiences and, and bridge that gap. It's exactly what I had done, as you can tell from my latest book in the Civil Rights Movement when I edited a newspaper that reached out to uh, both people involved in the Civil Rights Movement and black citizens of the South, as well as the establishment, the white establishment, they weren't reading the same news, and they, neither uh, sector was getting accurate news uh, back in that day, and that's why we started this newspaper. Well, I did exactly the same thing with Privacy Journal, trying to get people on both sides of the issue to be reading the same publication, and it's worked. I think that uh, people in the business tolerate my point of view because I provide enough information for them, and uh, I provide enough consumer tips uh, for people who are on the consumer side so that they put up with my uh, other news that may be more of interest to specialists in the field than to uh, the average person. Mm-hmm. Well, and how, how has it evolved over the years? Because besides, you know, becoming digital now, um, as far as like the 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 topics that you're covering, it sounds like you probably started with the the credit reporting agencies and maybe like you were saying, consumer rights, but what have you gotten into today that's really dramatically different than what, you know, you had covered in those early years? Well, it's been remarkable because when I got into it, the main concern was huge uh, central processing units, both in the hands of government and large agencies. And uh, as you know, there were a lot of inaccuracies in that period when we were transitioning Mm -hmm. from paper records. Um, then uh, along came concern about social security numbers and, and uh, um, identity documents. And then in the early 1990s came uh, two major events. One was that uh, uh, retailers and the uh, credit bureaus were discovering what was called target marketing in order to uh, reach consumers uh, who are interested in your product. You have to know a little bit about them and what their interests are and, and what they're apt to buy. Uh, it was targeted marketing as opposed to widespread broadcasting, which uh, spins out advertisement, very expensive advertising, to a lot of people who are not interested in your product. So retailers started to uh, uh, target their um, their message, usually through uh, direct mail, and using very targeted lists based on uh, uh, personal information that the credit bureaus uh, had gathered about people, about their likes and dislikes, and they would rent lists about magazines that people liked and uh, could tell from motor vehicle records what automobiles they purchased. Well, that was the same time that uh, uh, personal computing came along and and computing power uh, came to the people who uh, use computers uh, as consumers. That was a totally unexpected development, but it brought about a certain balance where large organizations had computing power, but so also did individuals. And we had the phenomenon of electronic mail, which really allowed uh, companies to exploit this target marketing 
concept. And shortly after that, a few years later, we had the Internet, which allowed for the collection of masses of information. Uh, what people didn't, were never told during that period was that the Internet was a way to... Uh, uh, permeate uh, to to intrude upon this machine that was on your desk at home. Uh, it was not a um, network like uh, television or or radio transmissions, which were one way. They were sending messages and stories and entertainment to us. The internet was actually going into this device in our homes, in our bedrooms, and extracting information like cookies and like uh, the uses of the various websites we wanted to visit and exploiting that information and leaving uh, traces behind uh, on our desktop. And uh, people really didn't understand that aspect about it. It's still true today mm-hmm. that um, when you get software or get an app or go to a website, uh, all of those activities leave behind uh, traces, footprints, on your own computer. So your your computer is a part of this network, and it's and that aspect is beyond your control. So we have to think of it as a totally two-way interactive medium, not a one-way medium like the former television and radio that that we all kind of grew up with. Oh yeah, I mean I can remember working for a very large multinational um, organization throughout the '90s, speaking with the marketing area and talk about salivating at the possibility of reaching people directly on their, you know, PCs at the time. Uh, They were just thinking of all sorts of ways they could now send new types of messages. So um, it's been very interesting. And I know your new book, your uh, book Faces I Have Known, um, as I was going through that, there were some, you have so much in there. I mean, you've met so many people through your life, Robert. I just loved uh, seeing everyone that you've come in contact with that you've talked about in the book. And you're based it's been out, amazing, yeah. Yeah, and you're based out of Providence, Rhode Island, right? So Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in Washington for area? about 25 years uh, ah, doing the newsletter okay. and prior to that working for the federal government. And then prior to that, uh, I worked for daily newspapers in Detroit and in New Jersey and encountered all sorts of um, well-known people and had lots of anecdotes I just wanted to share with people. I'd tell people about them verbally, and and uh-huh. I wanted to compile them all because I want to share them. Oh, well, it's fascinating. I mean, one person whose book that I haven't read yet that I want to is Caroline Kennedy. And you have uh, in your book about how Caroline Kennedy came to your home around 1994. Uh, can you describe that visit to my listeners? I thought that was really incredible. Yeah, I, I, her book, as does mine, demonstrate that uh, there is this field called privacy, which ought to be distinguished from computer security. Um, and uh, she's written two credible books on, on privacy. Before she did the second one, she wanted to reach out to me and find out what information I had that she might be able to use. And uh, I was very gratified that she came by my home, where my office is as well, in Providence. And we spent the afternoon together just going through um, all these issues. And I recount how her husband, uh, on a beautiful July day here in Providence, uh, instead of uh, ringing the doorbell and coming coming in the house, just chose to sat out, sit out on the front steps and enjoy the neighborhood, which is <laughs> a good way to spend that afternoon. But she was very gracious and uh, very smart, too, and I think she was a very credible author and never got much credit for that. Uh, I remember when she was rumored as a candidate for the U.S. Senate, 
10 years ago, I guess it was, New York Times and other publications said, well, she's really never held a job. And I thought that was an insult to independent writers everywhere because she had yeah. uh, in her career at least three or four books, and two of them about privacy in my field were uh, were very credible and, and, and well done. So she uh, then became ambassador to, to Japan and, and in the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when she met with you at that point in time, was she viewing privacy as a simply legal issue or was she going beyond that into the emerging uses of personal data and and maybe what it could lead to beyond just laws? I think she was looking at the people who were affected. She'd go to these uh, court cases that most lawyers look at for the principles that they stand for, and she wanted to know about the people who brought these lawsuits and how it had an effect on on their lives. We had cases involving gay rights, for instance. Well, she knew there was a story behind everyone who brought one of those cases, um, as well as uh, some of the other great uh, privacy cases involving homeschooling and uh, and parental rights and, uh, and, indeed, challenging credit records that were inaccurate and costing people jobs and, and credit. Um, and she wrote profiles of these people, what brought them to bring these lawsuits and the price they paid to uh, stand up for their rights and to go through a process that I think is about the most stressful thing in American lives, and that's litigation. They were willing to go to court and to um, um, use their patience and avoid the frustrations of going to court, and and over the years, eventually prevailed. And uh, her first book involved people who who pursued uh, uh, bill of rights, constitutional rights cases, and then she narrowed that down to people who pursued privacy cases and gave us a glimpse into why they pursued this and what they achieved by it and how they provided the building blocks that built this right to privacy. It really wasn't developed until 1960 or the mid-60s, actually, and now it's, even though people keep claiming that it's a vague concept, which is one of my pet peeves, it is a, it is a very well-established legal concept now, thanks to a lot of those court cases that came along that established these principles. So we may think that privacy is disappearing in the United States, and it certainly is on the wane, and it is certainly subject to abuse, but it's also true that over those years we've developed some very strong legal principles that if only we can uh, apply them to the current situation, we'll be in much better shape. But that's why she came to come by and visit me. I happened to have on the wall of my office a picture of me when I was at college, um, my college newspaper wrote a parody of the Yale newspaper during the Harvard-Yale game, and mm-hmm. the headline was that Kennedy would attend that game. They persuaded me to wear a Kennedy mask and to walk out on the field as the <laughs> student band played Hail to the Chief, and uh, it worked. <laughs> um, hey. <laughs> we fooled everybody, and there's a picture on the wall just showing me uh, portraying her father. Oh, that's great. Did she see that? Did she enjoy that? She did that? indeed, yeah. She was amused <laughs> by that. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about legal principles and, and established legal basis for privacy, let me uh, switch to another person you have in your book, and that's Antonin Scalia. And I found him to be such an interesting 
um, court justice, uh, Supreme Court justice, basically because of his very uh, unique sometimes views. And I was really intrigued about your story of him and his view of privacy. And if I can quote one of your passages, uh, you wrote, he asserted that corporate privacy was probably more important than personal privacy. Perhaps it was to those who thought that the right to privacy must prove an economic value to society to be worthy. And, you know, that that statement really struck me and certainly seems in line with other statements Scalia has said, though. But uh, we have about three minutes until break. But for the next, uh, you know, couple of minutes or so, I mean, what did you think of that encounter? Well, um, the, the the concept is that privacy is a personal right. It's a human right. It 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 talks. It it deals with hurt feelings, and corporations and organizations don't have feelings, so they have no constitutional right to privacy. I'm not denying that they have a right or or an interest in secrecy, trade secrets and the like. That's quite different from a constitutional right. Uh, I think Scalia and others were quite careless in their thinking that. Uh, applied the same principles of privacy to me as an individual as to the Pentagon, spoke speaking of privacy of the Pentagon or of mobile oil company. That was the dispute, and uh, eventually I think Scalia came to realize that uh, privacy is better understood if it's confined to individuals as an individual right. And it's coming up again here. Just last month, the February, uh, in fact, the American Bar Association approved privacy law as a specialty for the first time, meaning that lawyers can advertise that they specialize in privacy law. And they made the mistake of including uh, uh, co- corporate privacy with individual privacy, and that only clouds up the issue. And uh, yeah. it's the bane of my existence. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a break that we're coming up on now. I want to pick up uh, on that when we come back from the break, though. So uh, thank you right now, Robert. Now's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We're speaking today with Robert Ellis Smith and about his career in privacy in his new book, uh, Faces I Have Known. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Simbus360.com, PrivacyProfessor.org, and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these interviews important messages from my sponsors. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. 
Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and we are speaking today with Robert Ellis Smith. So let's go ahead and continue with our conversation. Before the break, we were talking about Antonin Scalia and his opinions about privacy as it related to individuals versus corporations. And, you know, as you point out, Robert, in your book, in 2011, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously, at least when it uh, comes to the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA for short, and the release of documents held by the government that corporations do not have a right to personal privacy, but yet we have the Citizens United 2010 Supreme Court ruling that corporations had a right to privacy, generally uh, to not have to release the names of their donors, and that it's uh, a right, but just not a constitutional right. So not, not to get deep into the details, but just in general, what's your opinion about the Citizens United ruling? Well, I view that as a case more that authorizes uh, uh, corporations to give unlimited amounts to, to candidates. And um, I view it as a uh, campaign finance decision more than a privacy decision, although it is true that along the way they say that corporations need not disclose some of the information about their uh, contributions. It's a little separate from privacy, but I feel that uh, it's wrong-headed. I think we've seen the effect of uh, campaigns just awash with money, and it, it allows for some of the abuses that we know now happen in uh, the 2016 uh, election. And I, I, I hope that uh, the Supreme Court or, or Congress can reclaim uh, the balance in our electoral system so that uh, corporations and people, individuals, are on an equal footing when they're making campaign contributions. I think it's really unfair to regard corporations as people um, in in that context. Uh, the, The case I mentioned earlier when the Supreme Court really did say that there is no such thing as privacy for corporations 
involved AT&T, a huge conglomerate. And Chief Justice Roberts said it in the decision, I hope AT&T won't take this personally. It's the way I've always remembered that case. That uh, I think it shows the fallacy of regarding privacy, uh, regarding corporations as people. People mm-hmm. have feelings and they have individual rights, and corporations, entities don't don't have those same feelings. That's what privacy is all about. It's protecting hurt feelings when people say nasty things or embarrassing things about others. It's a chance for some recourse when an individual is caught up in press coverage or internet lies or other scurrilous uh, circulation of, of, of words, I'll say. It's not really information or facts. It gives them mm-hmm. some recourse to, for hurt feelings when people intrude upon their private lives. Well, and even beyond that, the harms that it can do when that personal information is perhaps used in ways that results in them losing a job or not getting a loan or other types of uh, restrictions on what they would like to freely do in their own personal lives. Um, I, I want to share a story with you, and I think you you probably already know this, but um, that back when Mitt Romney was running against Obama for president, he had a very widely um, shown statement where he was recorded answering someone in the audience. They said, uh, you know, what about... Uh, the privacy of individuals, and you know they were they were against the Citizens United decision. I believe maybe it was a little bit before that, but anyway, he he came back with the retort: um, "Corporations are people, my friend," or something like that. But I just thought you'd find it interesting that every four years here in Iowa, I'm I'm based in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, we get all of the early uh, presidential candidates, and Mitt Romney was actually at the Iowa State Fair, and it was some folks at the fair that was asking him about that. And so when when he made that uh, widely circulated statement about corporations being uh, people, my friend, that was located right here um, in Des Moines. So I thought that was really interesting that, that he made quite the uh, statement that I think uh, – had quite an impact on his campaign, probably too. After he said it, so yeah. Well, corporations are made up of people; they are not the same as people. And I think that it helps our understanding of constitutional law to keep those separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, you you talk about your uh, a lot of things in your book, and I love them. And I guess I want to to share with you too something I think we both have in common that I didn't realize until I read this, but I grew up in a very rural area of north-central Missouri that was about an hour away from Independence, Missouri, and of course, Independence, Missouri is where the Truman Library from Harry Truman is located, and I guess supposedly, according to what my parents have told me when I was two or three years old, why they used to go down to Independence to do their big city shopping, you know. So I guess, uh, you know, Harry Truman, after he retired back to Independence, he would be out taking his nightly constitutionals, he called them. And I guess a couple of times uh, he stopped to pat me on the head and, and I had a big round face with chubby cheeks and my parents told me he liked to, to talk to me and, and squeeze my cheeks a few times. <laughs> but you talked about meeting Harry Truman when you were 12 years old. So was he your first famous person encounter? 
I think that's true. He was. And one theme that emerges from the book, although it was not intentional, is uh, telling people how I developed as a journalist, which was essentially to separate from the crowd, to go away and uh, as an outlier or an individual, just look at a different perspective of an event or a happening. I did that with Truman. I did that with Eisenhower. I did that with Stevenson, who was running for president in that same year. And I think mm-hmm. I practiced my journalism that way. And maybe that's one reason why the press always looked at me as kind of an oddity. I, I have a home office. I, I uh, am self-employed for many, many years. I uh, try to uh, look ahead five years or ten years and alert people to, to new trends, uh, which I don't think the news, uh, newspaper world, television reporting world uh, does enough of. So in the end, when I was finished with that book, I think it showed uh, my techniques for uh, for gathering information. There are similarities mm-hmm. between my meeting Castro, my meeting Jimmy Hoffa, my meeting Scalia, in fact, were all because I separated myself from the crowd and I didn't follow the herd uh, on, on these big events and I would end up uh, um, uh, meeting and spending a little extra time with these uh, famous people that uh, my colleagues in the press did not do. Well, how did you meet Castro? That uh, I think our listeners would enjoy hearing that because, of course, he was so isolated for most of probably what my listeners remember from, you know, uh, being down in Cuba and the U.S. not even being able to go down there. So what was your encounter? Yeah, indeed. Well, it, it was uh, within a couple of months of his taking over in the revolution in, in Cuba, and he came to America to plead with the State Department and the White House, uh, although the White House wouldn't see him in the Eisenhower administration, he did meet with the State Department and pleaded with them for economic aid. Um, he came to Harvard, where I was an undergraduate, and uh, in uh, many of the incidents I portray in the book, I I volunteered to cover that event uh, because most established people didn't want anything to do with it because it was on a weekend or something else. And um, I got uh, press credentials and accompanied the uh, um, motorcade back to uh, Boston after the speech and uh, was hanging around the lobby. Meanwhile, I had uh, befriended uh, the press aide for the new Cuban government, and uh, he came up to me in the lobby and said, hang around, I think Dr. Castro, as they call him, uh, will probably uh, want to talk to you students. The establishment press had gone back to write their stories for the next day, and we student journalists didn't have that pressure. And sure enough, uh, 20 minutes later, the elevator doors parted, and there was Castro and his fatigues, and he came over and sat down with uh, four or five of us uh, who were reporters for university newspapers in Boston, and uh, we just had a chat. His English was fine, and he had been to the United States. His honeymoon was in New York City. He was an admirer of the United States. He uh, said, he, as people probably know, he loved American cars. He was a credible baseball player and loved American baseball. And he said right away, I, I don't have anything in common with the Soviet Union. I speak Spanish. Uh, I don't know Russian, and Khrushchev doesn't know anything about my little island, but I have to go there. I have to get help from my people because I've just been turned down by the United States government. Uh, and uh, uh, it was very, very compelling to me, and I always had this, for lack of a better term, soft spot for him, even though I don't dismiss some of the uh, consequences of, of his tyranny. I always thought that the United States could have been more responsive and could have uh, 
provided some help, and he would not have gone in the uh, socialist uh, uh, direction that, that he ended up going in. Wow, interesting theory. That would have been great to to go back in time and see, um, you know, test that out for sure. But you also mentioned Jimmy Hoffa. So now I know Jimmy Hoffa likes his uh, privacy because he, he disappeared, right? We, do, we haven't heard from him. So is he just really good at protecting his privacy? Or, you know, what did you speak to Jimmy Hoffa about? Well, I wonder about that. Uh, he certainly uh, did disappear, but he also was the subject of a major wiretapping case uh, that went the opposite way for him. He stormed back to Detroit to say farewell to his union membership. He was president of the Teamsters, and uh, he was convicted in Nashville of jury tampering. And in order to get that conviction, the U.S. government, the Department of Justice, uh, placed an informant um, in his legal team who reported back to the Department of Justice and the case before the Supreme Court was could that evidence be used against him and by a very narrow margin the Supreme Court said yes that meant that his conviction stood and he knew he was going off to jail within uh, a couple of weeks and so he came back to Detroit for a farewell uh, to his membership he was in the green room which is the waiting room for performers and the like at Cobo Hall, which is a huge arena in, in Detroit. And he said, okay, everybody out, just just my uh, Teamsters people in here. I, I have to get my head together and decide what I'm going to say in my speech, blah, blah, blah. Well, I was just there a, a week or, or two in Detroit. None of those people knew who I was, so the veteran reporters had to leave because they were recognized. I was not recognized. I just stayed there sitting on a couch and continued to take notes as he ranted and raved about the court decision. He was particularly fond of Justice Douglas's dissent, which found uh, for him, he, Justice Douglas would have found out a gross invasion of privacy and violation of due process, uh, but he, he was on the losing side of that. So uh, I just, the next day, wrote an account of uh, Castro behind the scenes, what he's really like uh, in private, thinking that he Your was hotter. not observed by the press. I never got any objections uh, from the Teamsters. Many of them were mm-hmm. uh, um, not too crazy about Jimmy Hoffa and probably welcomed the portrait of him, which showed him as kind of a foul-mouthed, uh, oh, fairly abusive guy to his union membership. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, like you said, if you just uh, go to the places, the roads, less traveled oftentimes, you can get some really good stories and have some really good accounts encounters with folks um now that, that has been my experience and in fact that was true with castro i just uh, hung around a little bit till yeah. good fortune struck well you mention in your book that uh, gloria steinem connected you with phil donahue so right there you got two people and it's like well how did you meet gloria steinem uh talk about uh two, you know, icons, but Gloria Steinem, how did you get in touch with her? Well, a good friend of mine for whom I worked in the government and had attended Harvard with and had remained a friend through all those years, actually dated dated her. And uh, I was very intrigued. They, they seemed like an odd couple, but the more I heard about her, the more I saw the attraction between the two. And we would double date in Washington. She came to Washington about every weekend during that period. And uh, we, uh, we'd go to discos and we'd go out to dinner. She introduced me to uh, not only disco, but to uh, 
um, Japanese food <laughs> for the first time. I had not had sushi till she insisted that I try it. And uh, I, uh, I was asked earlier which person in my book uh, seems to be most contrary to the public image, and I would say Gloria is is my answer uh, in a very positive way. She's not a radical uh, uh, person, uh, not a strident feminist. She's very friendly and humorous, and she never thought of herself as a great hero, heroine, or a great crusader. Or she didn't think she influenced people. She essentially was a uh, reporter, a writer. Mm-hmm. And she's very affable and very humorous, and I found that a very nice trait and got along with her very well. And uh, I'm really pleased um, that in her 80s now, she still looks great, sounds great, and uh, is still active in public life. And probably still a friend, right? I mean, yes. that sounds pretty yeah. cool. And, and you know... When people make such an impact on the general public, oftentimes it's only that one aspect of their life that people know them by. So that's probably why people see her and think that she's an ultra, you know, what people think of as hardcore, whatever they want to say about their idea of feminist. But that's really neat that you got to know her as a person to to see a full, well-rounded um, idea of what she actually is like in her life. So that's yeah, really cool. I mentioned that in a very short introduction to the book that quite often these glimpses are unfair to the celebrities because they may not be having a good day or they may not like you or they may not be in a good yeah. mood. And we often tell our friends uh, what we've encountered and leave a negative impression of the celebrity. I didn't have any many encounters like that, but I do think that these glimpses can be unfair and I acknowledge that. Yeah, well, you know, and that's the way it it just generally goes. But too bad too many uh, today oftentimes take one out-of-context incident and they kind of judge a person all from just one maybe sentence they say. But, uh, you know, you had a lot of of um, your famous period. I think you were on the Phil Donahue show, and for those that might not recognize that name, he was like the forerunner of Oprah Winfrey and some of the others who ended up having their own talk shows. And then David Hartman, he was on uh, Good Morning America. So when you went on their shows, what would you typically uh, speak to them about as far as privacy? Well, it was about privacy, and usually with the... First of all, it was that, that I was an oddity. Here was this guy publishing a newsletter about privacy, which they thought was kind of contradictory that you could have a publication about privacy. And they didn't really understand what it was all about and anticipate the problems that I could foresee with the, the computer age. Um, and uh, Gloria Steinem was very friendly with Phil Donahue through Donahue's wife, Marlo Thomas. And uh, Donahue was quite a feminist. And uh, he had this morning show, as you, you mentioned, that really had very sophisticated guests on. He wasn't just uh, uh, coming up with the latest celebrity who was trying to promote a, a movie, but uh, people you could really learn from. And I really wanted to go on the show a lot. And She uh, went to bat for me with Donahue, and the response came back that they did have a guest about privacy not long ago, and he was very boring. Uh, so, uh, they, <laughs> who was that? Or, or I guess uh, well, I'm not going to say. <laughs> He's okay. not a name that most people would recognize, although he was recognizable back then. Um, but uh, he, he eventually did, he did a, a short a spiel on the Today Show for for about a year and a half, and he had me on that one. And um, it, it would be to interview me about credit reports and uh, wiretapping and medical records, and you, the, the the interviewers would want to know what what people's rights were. 
Oh, great. So, well, if he had you on more than once, uh, then obviously he didn't find you boring. So that's a good thing, right? (laughs) Well, I was on my best behavior. I wanted to prove that privacy is not a boring subject. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's something that individual consumers can relate to. Oh, exactly. And and I'll tell you, my measure always was, after a show, radio or television, was if the technical people, the stage crew, came up to me afterwards and asked me a question about something I had talked about, I knew that I had reached reach somebody and that happened all the time where the technical crew was interested in what I had to say and they all had a privacy beef that they wanted a little advice on well that was that gave you even more good uh, stories than too at least to write about uh, if not you know to talk about from the famous people's standpoint but now I did, I, did, in- I did mention that I was on a show called the tomorrow show with Tom Snyder that was uh, yeah. very big. I followed the Johnny Carson show out in Los Angeles, and uh, he he asked me if I was relaxed, and I said, not really. I guess maybe a cocktail <laughs> would make me more relaxed, but I was just kidding. I didn't want to have yeah. a drink before I was interviewed, but as soon as we shut down and he went to a commercial, this uh, stagehand and overalls big burly man came up to me with a tray and the most perfectly mixed martini to give to me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, did you drink it then? Did that help you relax even more? I was finished. I was finished the interview. Of course I drank it. I loved it. I liked the accommodations. (laughs) What I remember about that show was it was the night Elvis died, and all the stagehands were reminiscing about their experiences with the king. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, you know, you've, you've talked about some really interesting people uh, and privacy, but going beyond privacy, I mean, who would you consider to be the most unique or interesting person that you've encountered, whether or not it be in privacy, uh, and why? It's hard to say. Steinem's the one I like the best, and she was kind of a role model as a journalist who was an advocate for a particular cause, and I kind of patterned my story after that. I don't mention Ralph Nader in the book, but he's a public person whom I came to admire and was a, a really interested in privacy, though that didn't get much much attention. Um, I, I, I like Castro personally. That was a thrill to meet him, and I, I certainly empathized with him in those early years before uh, things got pretty rough in, in his uh, revolution. So those are three that uh, that really stand out. I've, I've been fortunate. It's odd that I've been self-employed all those years because I've had some good bosses. I really have, mm-hmm. including Steiner's boyfriend, uh, Stan Pottinger, uh, Chuck Morgan, a man who really, I think, single-handedly brought about impeachment of, of Nixon, uh, Elliot Richardson, who was Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare uh, when I was there, and Bill Morris. I talk a good deal about him. Oh. He was my boss at Newsday when I was a, an editor there, and uh, a person who never disappointed me. He always, I thought, kept his integrity in the political world, which is very hard to do. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's always been the case, right? But even more so today, I think, with so many ways to have uh, communications going out about people and having everyone to be able to capture your audio, your video, and then to edit it even to uh, alter maybe what you were trying to say. So definitely. Um, So where can listeners get your book? So we've been talking about your book. Um, So where can they get it? Yeah, it's not a very long read either. I think it's a short read because I believe in being terse and I don't puff things up. I just tell the story. Um, 
It's uh, on Kindle for those with Kindle devices. Just go to Kindle.com and they can uh, upload it to their Kindle device or get it directly from me. I'll give you the email address. The price is fourteen fifty, and you can order it from orders at privacyjournal.net. That's orders at privacyjournal.net. And the name of the book is uh, Faces I Have Known. Great. And I will put that information, too, for our listeners on my uh, Voice America website. So you can also find it there. Um, so that'll be there. What What would, would you think in the last uh, minute that we have available here, what would you leave our listeners with, with regard to maybe one tip that you would recommend for them to better protect their privacy? Well, don't get snookered. Uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the people in the business like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and others uh, who are part of the dot-com era quite often uh, you know, try to reassure you that uh, corporations value your privacy, uh, but uh, uh, analyze everything they say and be very, very mm-hmm. cautious. Know all you can about the technology and what it can do and can't do, and um, Know the laws, too. Quite often, you mm-hmm. don't get the straight picture as to what your rights are. There are a lot right. of rights on the books now, whether medical records or credit records, and people ought to utilize them. So that's oh, my best definitely. advice to you, to uh, know the law and to know all you can about all this new technology. And read your uh, privacy journal, too, right? <laughs> uh, loyally, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, well, thank you, Robert, for being on the show. You've provided some really fascinating information about the folks you've met throughout your life and also about a wide range of privacy topics. So thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been a good chat. Yeah, I enjoyed it. So today we've been speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, publisher of the Privacy Journal, as well as the new book, Faces I Have Known. To find out more about Robert and his publications, you can also go to his website, privacyjournal.net. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. Please tune in each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And guess what? You can also find recordings of all my shows on iTunes, on Mobile Play, on Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and Player FM, in addition to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. And also, contact me, please, for information security, privacy, and compliance keynotes. Um, I've also been an expert witness, and also for more information about my Symbus360.com security and privacy cloud services. You could also... Visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see my appearances on the CW Iowa Live morning shows and see the topics we discuss there each month. Um, so, again, my email is RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge all of you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal data and and other types of information, even if it's not digitized. And notice how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and who you work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information that we've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank 
you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Stay safe.